This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify. We hope you'll subscribe and give us a good rating to help others find Out of Water. Welcome, friends, to another edition of the Out of Water Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lautenschlager. Joining me today, as he always does, is our pastor of education, Reverend Sam Kastensmith. And Sam and I today are continuing with the series Desiring the Kingdom as we come to 1 Kings chapter 12 and the story of Rehoboam and Jeroboam and the beginning of their two reigns and the division of the nation of Israel into the ten tribes of the north and to Judah in the south. Sam, this, uh, this chapter has... Uh, there's a lot of stuff going on in here, um, but first and foremost, to me, I have to feel like we maybe should give people a little bit of a of a maybe a look back as to how we got here. Like, how did we wind up here? Where we've got this potential for the split. So Solomon, when he comes onto the scene, that we've done a number of podcasts on the life of Solomon. So yeah. if, if you want to catch up on those, that'd be great. Um, but Solomon progressively throughout his life goes from this humble servant of the Lord that's leaning on the Lord entirely to where when God pours out blessing upon him, he takes the blessing and uses it selfishly to take care of himself and those that are close to him to insulate them. And so as Solomon and he reduced other people that were far off, you know, dismissed their concerns and, and reduced people to forced labor. Um, and so as Solomon then at the end in the last chapter of his life gives his heart to these pagan gods that are utterly reprehensible and God comes to him and says, okay, like because I love your dad, because of his heart for me, I'm not going to rip the kingdom out of your hands, but I am going to rip it out of your son's hands. But because of my love for David, I'm going to leave one tribe under his control. And so Rehoboam, who we are introduced to in chapter 12, is going to be the son of Solomon. And God had already told Solomon, I'm going to let him keep control of his tribe, Judah, but 10 of the tribes in the north are going to split. They're going to bail. And in the last chapter, we also see, so this is as a result of Solomon's wickedness, the Solomon's you know apostasy or whatever you want to call it, betrayal of the Lord. And God also went to this guy, Jeroboam, and said, I am going to rip the kingdom away from Solomon's line, and I'm going to give ten portions of the twelve to you. That's the ten tribes of the north. And so Jeroboam in the previous chapter has been anointed to become a king of a split kingdom. And so God has said, you know, here you have these 12 tribes of Israel. This is what was intended coming out, you know, that God spoke to Moses about hundreds of years earlier. But now those 12 tribes are going to experience a split with some of them going, the two tribes, Benjamin and Judah, forming the kingdom of Judah and the south. Those are the southern two tribes and the 10 northern tribes forming the kingdom of Israel. And Jerusalem is going to be in the south. That's going to be in the kingdom of Judah. That's probably the more important and enduring kingdom, honestly, um, because Jesus emerges from the kingdom of Judah. And the ten northern tribes uh, are going to be formed in today's passage. You know, and Jeroboam, after his anointing, uh, things didn't start off in a very auspicious manner for him. (laughs) Solomon got wind of this fact that Jeroboam had been anointed and decided he was going to kill him. Mm-hmm. And so Jeroboam, interestingly enough, like it's like everybody when they get in trouble in Israel, where do they run? They flee to Egypt, it seems mm-hmm. like. So he fled to Egypt, where he's been hanging out now, uh, until the time that Solomon dies. Mm-hmm. So after Solomon dies here in chapter 12, verse 1, we come to this Rehoboam, it says, went to Shechem, for all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. And as soon as Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard of it, for he was still in Egypt, where he had fled from King Solomon, then Jeroboam returned from Egypt. And they sent and called him, and Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel came and said to Rehoboam, Your father made our yoke heavy. Now therefore lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us, and we will serve you. He, that would be Rehoboam, said to them, Go away for three days, then come again to me. So the people went away. 
So we've got a stage here set for Rehoboam mm-hmm. to make a choice. <laughs> uh, the first thing that I thought of when I was looking at this passage was it's interesting that Rehoboam went to Shechem. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like a prophet didn't come to him. He wasn't anointed by a prophet. Uh, that's, you know, Saul was anointed by Samuel, and so was David, and Nathan anointed Solomon. So prior to this, the first three kings of Israel, a prophet of the Lord had anointed them, and that's mm-hmm. how they became king. And in this case, you know, I mean, tell me how you see it, but I, it looks to me like Rehoboam is being kind of summoned up to audition to some extent, or at least <laughs> being asked to, for an answer that they want to hear. Yeah, at a very minimum, I think this passage is acknowledging that there's tensions there. Yeah. And so whether the people said, hey, Rehoboam, come up here and prove yourself to me, or Rehoboam you know, sees that there's tensions brewing between the tribes. There's already divisions and cracks and, you know, you got this tribe and this tribe and they're both coming at each other going, I don't, I don't, I don't want to be a part of you. And so he's on a mission one way or the other to try to see if he can salvage a united kingdom, whether he thinks he's got to audition or whether or not he's going to kind of impose his power. There's an acknowledgement something's wrong with the kingdom for sure. And now you have – one of the interesting things is you imagine Solomon tried to kill Jeroboam to the point where Jeroboam ran to Egypt. And now all of a sudden you've got Jeroboam when Rehoboam goes goes to – to claim authority over the 12 tribes, all of a sudden Jeroboam shows up. So you imagine Rehoboam's looking at this going, wait a minute, <laughs> <You know? laughs> uh, something's going on here. Um, and it's really fascinating. And I think part of this, you know, Shechem, I don't know if this will mean much to anybody, but Shechem is is the city that is in in between Manasseh and Ephraim. It's, in, it's among the northern tribes. And so Rehoboam is going into kind of enemy territory in mm-hmm. the kingdoms. These are the tribes that are not happy with Solomon and the tribe of Judah and Rehoboam. Mm-hmm. And so he goes up there, but Shechem has a very interesting history. Uh, and one of the stories, like nobody ever talks about this, but – the first king is found in the book of Judges. Now, this is – everybody's going to go, wait a minute, wait a minute. Saul was the first king. But if you go back to Judges chapter 9 and 10 and you read the story of Abimelech, Abimelech is the son of the judge Gideon. And when Abimelech is born, he he comes up, he grows up, and he tries to seize control of the nation of Israel. And so he begins making alliances, and he actually – wants to become king. He has himself declared king. Um, And he becomes a tyrant who is nasty, and he's made king in the city of Shechem. Shechem. Mm -hmm. And that's going to be where he's going to be assassinated. And so Shechem does not have a good history (laughs) in terms of an anointing place for a new king. It's It's associated with a tyrant who's seizing control. And so here you have Rehoboam who wants to go to Shechem to be you know, to have his coronation. Well, there's not exactly a good. <laughs> there's not exactly a good legacy of of kings coming to power in Shechem. There's only one before him, and it's Abimelech, and that ended with a woman throwing a millstone on Abimelech's head to, to, <laughs> to put an end to his kingdom, in a sense. And I think he actually did reign as king for three years before he was done away with. So the uh, message would be: if you're coming to Shechem to become king, look up. Yeah. Keep a yeah. watch up. Look out for those yeah. millstones. Yeah, the, the people of Shechem do not like kings that are made king in Shechem. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's for sure one of the takeaways. I do think it's interesting. You said that Shechem is in the territory of Ephraim and Manasseh. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because in chapter 11, what we're told is that before Jeroboam was anointed, when it, it says that Jeroboam raised his hand against the king. So mm-hmm. Jeroboam was already contentious against Solomon prior to Ahijah coming and telling him, you're going to become king. Mm-hmm. So Solomon, which I thought was kind of like this sort of Sopranos kind of, you know, keep your friends closer, close and your enemies closer, he brought, you know, Jeroboam in and put him in charge of the forced labor, it says, over the house of Joseph, which would have been the territory of Ephraim and Manasseh, right? That would be the house of Joseph. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in, those are in, his two sons. Right. So Jeroboam was like, that was where he was in charge of the forced labor, and, mm-hmm. and I sort of wonder whether... In fact, he had tried to, like, you know, yeah, I know Solomon's doing Look, let me try to help you with this. Like, I kind of have this picture, and boy, am I reading between the lines here, Sam, but I kind of have this picture (laughs) because things that Jeroboam does here in chapter 12 
make me think that Jeroboam was a populist. He was a guy that was trying totally. to curry favor with everybody, playing both ends against the middle sort of thing. And I really wouldn't be surprised if when he was in charge of the forced labor over the house of Joseph, if he didn't try to curry favor with Ephraim and Manasseh and all the more like this was Jeroboam's home court. Yeah, this would have totally been Jeroboam's home court. Yeah. And we mentioned last week that that name means the strength of the people. So even Jeroboam's name means that. And so even in the name, you get this idea of a populist guy. And a lot of names in, in the Bible are prophetic in nature. And so here you have somebody who's brought back and all of Israel's kind of standing behind him going, all right, you're our spokesman, yeah. go. Yeah. And one of the things that you're intended, and, and the details of this chapter are intended to provoke your mind that when Jeroboam, now get this, he's, he's going back and forth between Israel and Egypt, right? So he's going in and out of Egypt, and so your, your mind is going, okay, there's an association with Egypt, but what is he doing? He's, he's going from Egypt to Israel to confront a tyrannical regime that has oppressed people in slavery. And so your mind is drawn to the idea that Jeroboam is kind of a reverse picture of Moses, right? He's coming before Rehoboam saying, hey, your father made our yoke heavy. He he was enslaving his own people, and I want you, hint, hint, to, to lighten the load. I want you to end the slavery. And in other words, like, let my people go. Right. <laughs> you know, and he's just traveled from Egypt. And, you know, the, the whole three days that Rehoboam requests, that's the same thing with Moses and Pharaoh. Let us have a three days journey that we may go worship our God in the wilderness. So all these echoes are happening. And later on, you're going to see Jeroboam extends his arm to order his people to seize somebody and his arm turns leprous. Well, that happened to Moses as a sign of God's favor on him, that his power would be behind him. And then God tells him, put put your arm back in the cloak and the leprosy goes away. Well, the same kind of a thing will happen with Jeroboam. And so you're seeing all these similarities between Jeroboam and Moses, and it's inviting you to say, is Jeroboam going to make good? Because remember, in the previous chapter, God came to Jeroboam and said, hey, if you follow after me, I'm going to bless your kingdom. I'm, I'm going to make things prosperous. I'm going to be with you. And, of course, Jeroboam makes a very lousy Moses. He yeah. does everything wrong. Yeah, he got he got offered the same deal that David got yeah. offered. If you do I, like what David did, I'll, I'll treat you just like I treated David. That's right. But apparently and, – and I think, folks, we can give you the predictor of when something's going to go bad. If your name ends with Boehm <laughs> – I'm trying to think yeah. if there's any Boehms that are good, but I'm just – in this case, at least in particular, Jeroboam and Rehoboam are racing each other to the bottom of the decision barrel. Yeah. So when you – so this is going to be the start of the split kingdom, right, where yeah. you have the kingdom of the north and the kingdom of the south, and both of them have founders that are fools. Yeah. It doesn't bode well for either one of them, and that's very intentional. So it says here in verse 6, then King Rehoboam took counsel with the old men who had stood before Solomon his father while he was yet alive, saying, how do you advise me to answer this people? And they, the old men, said to him, if you will be a servant to this people today and serve them and speak good words to them when you answer them, then they will be your servants forever. But he abandoned the counsel that the old men gave him and took counsel with the young men who had grown up with him and stood before him. Before we even hear what the young men have to say, because you kind of get the feeling it's tipping the hand here. If you're reading along, this is tipping the hand. It's not going to be as, as good here. But I think it's interesting, Sam, because you talked about the fact that um, – and, and this came out either last week or the week before when we were talking about Solomon – that Solomon would have taken really good care of his own household, of the people mm -hmm. that – of these men who stood before him. And that he, you know, and that from afar, if you didn't live in Israel, you had this like really high opinion of Solomon because Solomon was this great and wise guy, and look at how his kingdoms expanding and all his wealth. And but it was that, you know, it was that intermediate. It was people, the people in Israel, who were being, you know, forced to support Solomon's lifestyle. These men saw all of that. Mm -hmm. These guys had to know. They had to know what Solomon was up to, what he was doing, and how he was running the kingdom. Mm -hmm. And so they told Rehoboam something they were, I guess, afraid yeah. to tell Solomon. Yeah, and I think one of the other things that these men had seen is not just the, the, the decline in the way that Solomon treated his kingdom, but these guys were probably around to watch Solomon's father, uh, yeah. David. 
and yeah. how David treated people of other tribes. David showed mercy. If you remember, even after Saul, who had spent years trying to kill him, after Saul died, David even took care of Saul's household, like he, which was the tribe of Benjamin. I mean, he he went out of his way to show compassion to these other tribes and not to his own. Like he gave no special preference to the tribe of Judah, uh, and we'll, we see that in Second Samuel. Um, but Solomon begins to take care of his own, those that are close to them, to give special political favors and everything else. And so he begins to sow this political tension, and the old people are like, oh, man, the kingdom was so much healthier when we did it that way, yeah. the way of David and not Solomon. And so, you know, this passage, man, our current generation, <laughs> gosh, I wish we had people in power that are able to speak this kind of wisdom, because you consider – where we are as a people today. I mean, I've I've never, you know, I'm not too old. I'm 42, but in my lifetime, I've never seen the nation as polarized as it is right now. Mm-hmm. Um, both both sides feel oppressed by the other, um, and I'm just thinking, like, if you had somebody who had the humility to show some deference, some kindness, some some willingness to try to understand. Um, that doesn't mean compromise your ethics or your values, but just the humility to to be able to understand and show some compassion. And man, our nation needs that more than ever. And these these people are like, all right, the nation, the kingdom is divided, bitterly divided in, in this biblical story. And they said, you know what, right now what you need to do for these people is just love them. Love them and serve them. And if they believe that you have their best interest at heart and they see, you know, that you're giving them kind words and whatever, they'll be your servants forever. And they they recognize that. Um, man, we need that. It's kind of like and, – and that the Bible is definitely giving respect, deference to the idea that older people are wiser. Yeah, it um, always has. And and that's just true. Like we live – C.S. Lewis calls this problem chronological snobbery where the younger generation thinks we finally have it all figured out. And anything that's ancient or sacred needs to be abandoned because it's dumb and we're way smarter now. Okay, no. <laughs> younger generations are always dumber. Um, my generation is dumber than your generation when we're younger because we haven't lived and experienced and, and gained – the knowledge that life as a tutor teaches us. Yeah. And so like our generation now looks at the Bible and says, well, it's dumb, or it looks at the founders of our country and says they're all dumb and we're so enlightened now. We need to abandon everything that they ever taught us. Um, and that's always a perennial case with the young. It's Colleges will always produce these kind of people that are idealistic and want to change everything and challenge everything. Um, and age, time on this planet teaches us, you know what? <laughs> These old guys were pretty wise. I mean, there's there's room to grow and improve and everything else, but um, you don't have that knee-jerk reaction that everything old is dumb. Well, know? and it doesn't mean that everything that was done by the prior generation was always the right thing. Correct. It doesn't mean that people that are old never made a mistake. Um, we're not suggesting that for a minute, but this idea that, oh, well, you know, our day is so much more enlightened than mm-hmm. yours was. Um, <clears throat> it does. It leads to a generational arrogance that that creates this kind of tension where you have people that become you know bitterly opposed to one another because they both feel like they know something and the other side doesn't, and they're not paying. You know, you're not uh, you're not listening to me. You don't understand me. You're not. You don't hear me. Um, it's like no. It, you know we. There's a reason why in you know most of the of the cultures around the world there was some you know I mean I guess a few of them would take like the boy king sort of thing but generally speaking there's a reason why you had to come to adulthood before they let you run the kingdom mm-hmm. um <clears throat> you just didn't want to trust a 5-year-old with those kinds of of decisions mm-hmm. I think it's interesting, too, where he says that he uh, took counsel with the young men who had grown up with him and stood before him. Mm-hmm. Um, so he turned away from the guys that had worked with and for his father, and he turned to some guys who had grown up in the palace with him. 
his in other words he went to his posse he went to mm-hmm. his guys and these were i'm sure people who grew up in a in a position of privilege like you were saying these old men had you know had probably grown up in david's reign and then continued on in solomon and so they had you know it wasn't a situation where they had come up in this sort of privileged protected by solomon bubble but these guys, I think, probably had. I think mm-hmm. that, that he turned to a bunch of guys that are like, hey, sh- these guys are saying dad made it hard on them. Should I go easy on them? And they're thinking, if you go easy on them, it's not going to be quite as posh for us, you know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so he went to the wrong crowd. The idea, one of the things that gave them that wisdom is the benefit of time. Like they had, they had seen things. They had seen, you know, how the wisdom of David and how he – he showed deference to all tribes was it produced a far more beautiful result for everybody than somebody who's only got the memory of how things are done now yeah um it's just there's a humility in recognizing you know that gosh when when i'm in church or something and somebody who's been around the church for a long time i i can remember you know like when don marks used to speak in session meetings you know who'd been around the church for a long time when he would speak up and say, I don't know that that's a good idea, everybody shut up and listen. Yep. <laughs> you know, like, that's true. And with good reason because he'd seen a lot. He knew how things worked. And, and so you wanted to, to give deference to the, how much God had shown him through his life. Yeah. And you know, I fear you know, that and, – and this is, again, a perennial problem, but I feel like it's more pronounced now. Um, and maybe it's the, you know, the, the, the woke thing or whatever – where there's there's almost an animosity toward anything that's old, anything that's ancient, anything that's sacred. There's an instinctive distrust that it has to be toppled, um, and that's really unfortunate. And I think it leads our country into a lot of folly. You know, there are yeah. Does the country have blemishes? You you better believe it does. But you know, even the idea of statesmanship and you know the way that we treat one another in the political realm and and the way that we talk to one another with humility like there were commonly agreed upon things that this is at least right we may not do it correctly but now there's just an abandonment of all of it yeah um and we're fools as a result when we throw out the ways that the elder generations have taught us so now that we have set this all up let's hear the advice from these <laughs> wise young men Verse 9, and he said to them, what do you, talking to the young men, advise that we answer this people who have said to me, lighten the yoke that your father put on us? And the young men who had grown up with him said to him, thus shall you speak to this people who said to you, your father made our yoke heavy, but you lighten it for us. Thus shall you say to them, my little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. I mean, That's not what that means, is no, it, Sam? No, 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 no. <laughs> I, I mean, you can imagine. Put, a, put on your middle schooler hat. These are, these are, young, <laughs> these yeah. are young, young. My little finger is thicker than my father's. Thighs is not the appropriate translation, but I'll leave it to your imagination to wonder what that Hebrew word really says. Um, it cleans it up for us in, in the Bible. But, I mean, you get how juvenile and petty their response is. It's, it's all, I'm better than you. I'm bigger than you. I'm more powerful than you. Like, it's not to come back and think, hey, what's going to be best? Using wisdom to imagine what's going to heal, it's, I'm going to put you in my place. I'm going to show you you're wrong and that I'm powerful. And it does it in this crude way that even amplifies their, you know, juvenile foolishness. And they say, and now, whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. Mm -hmm. So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam the third day. As the king said, come to me again the third day. And the king answered the people harshly and forsaking the counsel that the old men had given him. He spoke to them according to the counsel of the young men, saying, My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. You'll notice, by the way, that Rehoboam left out the little finger yeah, yeah. thigh thing. I, You know, it's like, okay, that's a line I'm not going to cross <laughs> in front of the people. Um, and then verse 15, so the king did not listen to the people. 
For it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord that he might fulfill his word, which the Lord spoke by Ahijah the Shilonite to Jeroboam the son of Nebat. Mm -hmm. I wanted this verse is really something that grabbed my attention and prompted, uh, you know, some discussion that in the personal worship study notes um, for last week, and also just in my own life with people that I was talking to during the week. It just it just was so odd how it kept coming up. This idea of God's control over things and God's mm-hmm. sovereignty. So we saw in chapter the prior chapter, chapter 11, we saw how God told Jeroboam, this is what's going to happen. You're going to get the kingdom. I'm offering in this deal. If you do, if you walk with me like David did, you're going to be treated like David was. But, but here's the deal. I'm telling you up front, you're going to get 10 of the kingdom, 10 of the tribes. And so we, all of these things were set up in advance. He told Solomon, I'm going to tear the kingdom away from your son. So we knew that Rehoboam was going to lose the kingdom. We knew that Jeroboam was going to get the ten tribes. That was a foregone conclusion mm-hmm. because God decided it. And yet, here we have a situation where that split happened because Rehoboam made a bad choice. Mm-hmm. And so this brought up this question between sovereignty, free will kind of thing. Um you know, there's the the idea of sovereignty. And boy, this is going to derail things. So maybe this will all get cut out. I don't know, <laughs> folks. But if it stays in, you're welcome. But the idea of sovereignty is that everything that happens mm-hmm. happens either by God's direct cause, like He causes it, or He allows it to happen in accordance with His will. The idea basically is that nothing happens that God does not want to happen. That's the the you know the ballpark mm-hmm. definition of sovereignty. And so the question that gets raised by that is, well, then how does God hold any of us accountable for things if he's in control of everything and it's not our fault? And I'm like, no, it doesn't take away from responsibility. Rehoboam still made a bad choice, but God Mm -hmm. knew he was going to make the bad choice. And God set up all the chess pieces on the board to give Rehoboam the opportunity to say the wrong thing and do the wrong thing. It It was by God's will that he got advice from the old men and advice from the young men and followed the advice of the young men. Did God force him to that? No. So, you know, when you look at something like this, if I were to ask you, Sam, could Rehoboam have made another choice? Would you say yes or no? Um, I hate that you phrased the question that way. <laughs> okay. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> Forgive me. <laughs> could he have? I mean, it's one of those where – no, because God had ordained it, and yet Rehoboam is absolutely responsible right. and had the capacity to make a different choice. That's the difficult um, tension here, isn't it, when we start talking yeah. about sovereignty and free will? We, I talked about this in our personal worship um, maybe a few weeks ago when this question came up, but one of my one of my favorite movies of all time, probably top ten, is Forrest Gump. And in that movie, you have this tension. And the whole movie is about this question, by the way, this free will versus, you know, fate. And, you know, he's – mama always said life's like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. Everything is just kind of random-like, right? The feather on the breeze. Um, but then he says, you know, Lieutenant Dan, on the other hand, is like, no, I had a fate. Every member of my family going back forever has died in war. I was supposed to die. Um and so there's this tension of which is it? You know, the feathers floating around on the breeze, but it always ends where it's supposed to be. And then at the end of the movie, when he's over Jenny's grave, he's having a conversation um, with Jenny, who's no longer alive, and he rehearses this. You know, Mom always said, but then Lieutenant Dan says, and then he says this brilliant thing. It's it's this mystery where you know he says maybe it's both. <laughs> you know, and and that's I think that's absolutely true. You know, God's sovereignty has to. At the end of the day, if I have to choose between free will and God's sovereignty, I have to err on the side of God's sovereignty. I have to. But I do believe that there's this mysterious union where there is absolutely not one thing that happens in this world, good, bad, tragic, whatever, that happens without God being on the throne and either bringing it about or allowing it to happen. Um, and at the same time, there is absolute responsibility for the choice that I hold. Um, he's he's the master author, but in a sense, you know, it's like we're wet ink on the page, yeah. you know, um, where it feels like you know we have we're not in stone, but it, it's come from his pen. He's the author of all things. He's the author of our salvation. Um, 
And yet he's writing our story and we get to choose in this moment as though we're wet ink on a page whether or not we're going to write our lives into a heroic part of God's story or our own. You know? Somebody I knew years ago, Sam, used to say that he pictured it as being kind of like a rope swing that you sit on and you look up and you see these two ropes stretching up into the tree. You know, it's like tied to a tree branch and all you mm-hmm. can see is leaves above your head. What you see is these, these two ropes that are going off in a straight line never to intersect. They're totally separate and independent. And one of them is free will and one of them is sovereignty. And what you don't see is that just above those leaves, just out of your sight, they're both tied to the same branch. Hmm. Um, That was his explanation of how free will and sovereignty kind of worked together. They're both tied Mm -hmm. to God, that branch that you just can't see. Um, And I thought, you know, that's a good way to, to look at it. We see them as being things that are opposed to each other. It can't be both sovereignty and free will. Mm-hmm. But in the same way, we talk about the Trinity, right? How can somebody be three distinct beings and yet one person, one being? Yeah. And there's, you know, the, the, part, the problem that we run into is, is we want to assign blame. You know, it's... Oh, boy, do we. <laughs> oh, my goodness. We're, we're really good at that. Yeah, it's, it's like, ding, 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 someone needs a victim. Let's go. Yeah, and, you know, I, I've used this illustration before, I don't, and I don't know that it's perfect. So if we're talking about sovereignty and the will of God, we're, we're destined to fall into heresy eventually. But Yes. Um, one of the ways that I used to use this when I would talk with students is, you know, if you're reading through the Harry Potter books, um, you don't get angry at J.K. Rowling when evil wins, right? So, like, let's say Voldemort claims a victim. You know, the evil guy kills somebody that you love in the story. You don't go, J.K. Rowling, why did you write it like that? You know, because even though you're reading a story that was penned, you know, ink on a page by the author, you still, in your mind, are blaming Voldemort. He's evil, you know? And so, in some sense, God is writing the story, yet you don't get angry at the author. You get angry at the characters in the story. Story and yeah. somewhere in there is this blend between the author, who is sovereignly writing all things and allowing all things, uh, ordaining all things, and the characters in his story, which yeah. we are. Um, there is this mysterious union. And I've had the conversations with people that have said, "Well, God's you know sovereignty is all entirely based on His foreknowledge." That, you know, God is able to look ahead down the choice of, of down the corridors of time and, and yeah, <laughs> and see the choices that we make. And therefore, he he ordains them. I'm like, you have a really funny definition of the word ordained. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and it doesn't work. That doesn't get God off the hook. I taught. I've taught for several years in a classroom. And the one time I got in trouble is when I challenged a student who had that particular bent and i asked him so this is this is actually kind of jarring to think about so brace yourself side this is uncomfortable to think about but i said let's say that god knows you know and the reason why they didn't want to say that god was sovereign because that means that he is ordained that people will choose not to accept him and that they will go to eternal judgment and that that thought was beyond them and i it's uncomfortable for me i don't like it either but i said the alternative that what you're saying is is that he just knew ahead of time and if he knew ahead of time that I was going to be born and I would reject him and I would ultimately go to a fate of eternal judgment and he still created me, how does that get him off the hook? If God knew that something bad was going to happen and he doesn't intervene or he allows everything to play on as, as is necessary to make that bad thing happen, then the fact that he doesn't intervene still leaves him on the hook if he could. And so foreknowledge does not get God off of the, you know, the blame seat. Yeah. Um, he's either God and he's entitled to do whatever he wants to with his creation. And by the way, we can take comfort in the fact that he is good and even things that we can't understand. He's working together for our good and for his glory, taking comfort in his characters. The only way that you can come to those those things where you've got questions, that's the only way that you're going to find comfort. Saying, oh, it's its just foreknowledge, that doesn't get him off the hook. Yeah. Because then he's got foreknowledge that something bad is going to happen and he did nothing to prevent it. Yeah. How yeah. does that get him off the hook? 
It doesn't. Uh, you're very right. No, that's a good answer. Uh, and I think that, you know, because I will be asked at times by people that say, well, if you believe that God is in control of all things, what value does that have to you? Why, why is that important to you? And, and my answer to that is always that it gives meaning to everything that happens to me. If I know that everything happens because God either made it happen or wanted it to happen or allowed it to happen, but it happened because he wanted it to happen, mm-hmm. then and I know that God is good and I know that God has a plan that he's working out through the ages and through his people and through and and I'm just a part of that. At least I know I I believe that there's meaning mm-hmm. even to the really horrible things that happen. I believe that there's meaning. Now, do I know what the meaning is? Because that's the next question. They're like, what meaning? I'm like, sometimes I don't know. Sometimes I'll never know. Mm-hmm. But what I do know is that God is good, and I know that everything that happens happens because God wants it to happen. And so even when something horrible happens, I'm going to say there's meaning in it. Mm-hmm. There is. Yeah, totally. I mean, and down to the minutia. I I joke around every once in a while that I'm a pastor at Rio Vista Community Church, and I'm hosting this podcast right now because Ronnie Perry got the flu 12 years ago. Um, and and so the, the where, where I'm going at with that is I got this job because I went on a trip to Israel with Pastor Tom, and we got to know each other better. And he said, hey, why don't you come do your internship at Rio Vista? That was the beginning of the relationship. Why was I on that trip? I was on that trip because the person whom they had scholarshiped to be on that trip to Israel and to help co-teach at the different sites got a very vicious flu. And at the last day, he said, I can't go. I'm, I'm just – I'm too sick and you need to find someone else. And so in a scramble, they said, well, we'll take Sam. <laughs> you know? And I am – I'm doing this podcast right now because God allowed Ronnie Perry to catch the flu. Had that not happened, the the course of my life is radically different. And there's a now that's not a pleasant thing. Did God cause that to happen to bring about you know a change in my life and radically change the you know my family and everything else? Down to somebody catching the flu. Absolutely, God ordains all these things together. He ordains tragedies to bring out some something beautiful. And that tragedy might not have any kind of a purpose until glory. Yeah. You know, to where glory brings out something beautiful, but that's going to be an eternal fruit that's enjoyed forever um, when it's on the other side of glory. But God has his purposes. It's interesting, too, when it comes to, uh, you know, we've we've had people that we know personally who have died after an illness at an age that is, you know, unseemingly young for that to happen. It's there's been a few people it, just within our church where mm-hmm. that's happened, and you know you look at something like that and you say, well, that's that's tragic, and it is. It's a tragedy. Um, but I look at the people I know who have faced that bad diagnosis and the, that bad information, and and they have faced it with faith, and they have, you know, and yeah, they've good days and bad days. They get through it one day at a time, just like everybody else does. But they're. You know, their faith has given them comfort. Well, how does your faith give you comfort? It gives you comfort because you know that God has, there's some meaning in this. Yeah, I've been given this bad hand and and now I've got to play it out and it's not going to end well for me. But when I'm able to continue, when I'm able to face that with courage and with grace and, and with humility and continuing to trust God who's going to work in this somehow Mm -hmm. to accomplish his purpose, then even something that would seem like a horrible tragedy it's like i can find some comfort in that and when you look at that from the outside and you say i don't understand how you say this his faith can comfort him that's how it can comfort him or her i'm I'm thinking i'm just thinking of a couple different people you know i mean obviously dave ingram always comes to mind Mm -hmm. you know 61 years old you know enormously healthy man died from cancer Mm -hmm. um you know he suffered like a lot with Mm -hmm. that disease toward the end and yet his faith was a great comfort to him because he believed that God had a purpose in this um, and the things that have come up since then that we have seen God do and that doesn't always mean that you're going to have a building named after you Dave did and deservedly so it doesn't mean you're going to have a building named after you but it does mean that there's purpose in it there's meaning in it nothing meaningless happens in the life of a Christian yeah. and I don't know how I would face it Sam 
if it was truly random. If if just random bad stuff happened to me and I had to deal with that, mm-hmm. brother, I'm going to tell you something. I'd be a lot more inclined to just check out. Yeah. And I mean, to imagine that the Lord you serve is up in heaven, you know, fretting. Oh, my goodness. I didn't see this coming. What am I going to do? How am I going to make this right? What What hope is there? Oh, I hope I hope this works out. Like that would be debilitating. Yeah. You know, but to to look at a God and trust that he's trying to do something beautiful, even through something that's authentically awful. You know, there's you don't say, "Oh, you know, this cancer's a wonderful thing." No, that's not at all. Like Jesus died to overthrow death and disease and and sadness and all of that. He hates it more than we do, and he showed it by going to the cross. Yeah. But when you have that perspective, I remember being – you mentioned the Ingrams, and I remember being in a meeting with them where they were talking – Dave was honest with me about some of the sufferings that he was going through. And I had just come to work that morning after having an argument with my wife about laundry, and I was already feeling like the worst husband in the world, you know, because I was wearing dirty slacks and a shirt that was – you know, anyway, I don't want to talk about how bad of a husband I am. But anyway – in that meeting, Dave was in there, and he'd just come through a night where he was up all night dealing with some of the effects of this cancer. And he was talking about how his wife, Barb, was stroking his hair, reading him scriptures, praying over him. And he was just so grateful that she was such a great priest to him. Mm-hmm. And that in the middle of this suffering, it had brought them closer together and amplified their love and his appreciation for her. And I'm sitting there having had this, you know, not an argument, but conflict with my wife or tension over laundry. And I thought, you idiot. You absolute idiot. And here God was using this horrible thing that I guarantee you at the moment both of them would have said, please take it away. Absolutely get it away. But they trusted that God was doing something beautiful in the midst of it. And Dave was talking to me about how he wanted to use this as a means to show everybody that God was more precious to him than his health or his life. Um, He wanted to be in the classroom. He wanted to be teaching these kids about the preciousness of Jesus, and he did. And people marveled at the power of faith in his life. And it was authentic. And I'm sure there were moments where he thought, why in the world are you doing this, God? I'm sure he shook his fist at God. I I don't doubt that that would happen. But at the end of the day, he was resigned to the fact that God was good, that God had his purposes in this, and that allowed him to take the next step. Yeah. And the same for Barb, who had it harder than David did. Yeah. Um, you know, Having to watch someone that you adore walking through that. And yet yeah. she, too, would say God is sovereign and God is good. Well, it is a – and I don't know – I mean, this was a good conversation, a long conversation. I don't know how much of it will stay in. There's a lot of time. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm looking at the clock going, oh, my goodness, is this going to be an hour and a half episode? Um, so let's return to the story and see how much of this we can get through because <laughs> some of it we can we can summarize. But there's, there's a thing here that I wanted to ask you about. Uh, verse 16, the aftermath sets in. This is after Rehoboam has made his speech to the kingdom. And it says, and when all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, what portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel. Look now to your own house, David. So Israel went to their tents. Now, you and I were talking about this. What portion do we have in David? Mm -hmm. Um, You think that's a reference back to, what were you telling me, a reference back to what happened when David was chased out of the throne by his son? Correct. So in Second Samuel 19, this is David had been dethroned by his son Absalom, who actually came into Jerusalem looking to kill him, and David flees for his life. And then David's general Joab, in this plot, overthrows Absalom, chases him down, and kills him. And so David is coming back to the throne. And now all of Israel's kind of going, uh, you know, the king is coming back to his throne. Do we want him back? <laughs> yeah, and everybody had kind of shown support for Absalom, and now there's this awkward thing of are all the tribes going to welcome David back? Well, the ten northern tribes are the first ones to say we want King David back. We're in. You're you're our king again. And so, but Judah is hesitant. And so, at, in in this passage, 2 Samuel 19, David sends word to Judah saying, why should you, Judah, be the last of the tribes to bring the king back to his house when the word of all of Israel has already come to the king? And so eventually Judah comes on board. They escort David across the Jordan back to the throne. 
And then the ten northern tribes, of course, all this. So this is telling you all the tensions between these tribes are already there. The the ten northern tribes and the southern tribes, they're already suspicious of each other even back then because David is a man of Judah and they're waiting to see is he going to use tribal lines to begin exploiting us. But David didn't, and so. It says later on that when Israel's like, hey, why does Judah get the honor of being the one to escort you when we were the first ones to say we want you back? And so so all the tribes of Israel demand an answer, and the men of Judah, says, answer, and they say, because the king is our close relative. Why are you angry over this matter? And then they say, have we eaten at the king's expense? Has he given us any gift? And in other words, what, he, what they're saying is he has shown no favoritism toward Judah, which is totally the opposite of what Solomon will do. And the men of Israel then answer Judah and say, we have ten shares in the king. In other words, there's ten tribes, and we have ten shares in the king. And in David, we have more share than you. Well, that's totally the same language that's going on here, except now the ten tribes are looking at Rehoboam, and they say, we have no shares in David. It's very clear that you're all about Judah that you don't care about us, you don't care what we think, you don't care what we have to offer, you're just doing this to enrich yourselves, and you're treating us as though we're nothing but second-class citizens and slaves, we're out. To your tents, O Israel, we're done. Look now to your own house, David. (laughs) And it's over. And that's what Rehoboam did, verse 17, but Rehoboam reigned over the people of Israel who lived in the cities of Judah, which was the, that was the tribe that David was from. Um, then King Rehoboam sent Adoram, or Adoram, or Adoram. I just, I've pronounced it three different ways just in this reading alone. Uh, <laughs> it's was, actually, that's a shortened shortened way of saying his other longer name. Okay. Um, which is Adoniram. Okay. So, so I'll, I'll go with uh, Adoram then, uh, who was taskmaster over the forced labor. And all Israel stoned in the death with stones. I, when I read that, Sam, as I've, I'm thinking, how did you think that was going to turn out, Rehoboam? What did you think was going to happen? It's like the ten tribes in the north, they rebel against you. They, you know, they're, they've broken off from you. And what you did because was Because you s- you've worked them too hard. Right. So that's, I'm going to send the, the guy who did that to you, and it's all going to be fine. Yeah, yeah, let's send the taskmaster of forced labor after the people who just complained about being worked too hard. This is a great idea. Yeah, a great idea. So so Adoram ends up in a box, <laughs> and then it says, and King Rehoboam <laughs> – I like this, too, because now I'm thinking of, of like Monty Python and the Holy Grail, you know <laughs> – <laughs> Brave Sir Robin, bravely he fled, and King Rehoboam hurried to mount his chariot to flee to Jerusalem. So, <laughs> oh, that makes me want to listen to the Brave Sir Robin song. That's oh, just so wonderful. Yes. Bravely running away. Here he goes. Verse 19. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. And when all Israel heard that Jeroboam had returned, they sent and called him to the assembly and made him king over all Israel. There was none that followed the house of David but the tribe of Judah only. So then Rehoboam gets back to Jerusalem, and in this next little block here, he makes the only wise choice he's ever made. When Rehoboam came to Jerusalem, he assembled all the house of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin, 180,000 chosen warriors, to fight against the house of Israel, to restore the kingdom to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. He's like, he's going to take it by force. But the word of God came mm-hmm. to Shemaiah, the man of God. Say to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, and to all the house of Judah and Benjamin and to the rest of the people, thus says the Lord, you shall not go up or fight against your relatives, the people of Israel. Every man return to his home, for this thing is from me. So they listened to the word of the Lord and went home again, according to the word of the Lord. Well, actually, now as I read that, Sam, it doesn't say that Rehoboam listened. (laughs) It says that the people listened. (laughs) It's like they listened to the word of the Lord and went, yeah, Rehoboam, dude, we're out. (laughs) We're going back home. Uh, But they decided that it might be a bad idea to provoke a fight with Israel because, again, this comes back to our conversation about sovereignty, for this thing is from me. And so Rehoboam is, is presented as an utter fool. And, I mean, you see it in multiple multiple parts here. Um, but this, he finally shows even a, a, a bit of wisdom yeah. by not engaging in this all-out war. Right. Because Israel plus God, it'd be just forget about the Israel part. Did you say God was on their side? 
Yeah, I've seen that. <laughs> yeah. I've seen that happen. That's not that's not a good look for us. So uh, we're going to stay home. So then we have Jeroboam. Just when you think things can't get worse, then we have Jeroboam. Jeroboam now is king over Israel. He's been offered by God this opportunity to have a house like David and to be treated like David. So you think to yourself, well, of course, Jeroboam is going to make, you know, I mean, this is a guy that's just seen God do amazing things. And now suddenly he's king because of it. So, of course, he's going to follow the Lord. No. It says then, mm. yeah. It says then, Jer- I, we need to get ourselves one of those buzzer sound effects for these. Yeah, moments. I need a buzzer. <laughs> so, then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. And he went out from there and built Penuel. When it says built here, it means fortified. Basically, he made them into fortified cities to protect the northern position. So they were um, both of these apparently were in rather strategic ways that you would travel between the south and the north. Um, So he was essentially expecting the attack is what I'm getting at here. And Jeroboam said in his heart, now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So Jeroboam here, I mean, the temple was just built under Solomon in Jerusalem. We read the dedication. Mm -hmm. All of Israel came and celebrated with a huge feast at the temple. This was all still in their mind that, wait a minute, we just had the house. Where are we going to go worship? Do you think Jeroboam's Mm -hmm. fears were justified here? Or I kind of understand where he's coming from, you know? You t- I mean, it would totally make sense, but here's here's where you see the heart of Jeroboam. Is, notice what he says. The people will turn again to their lord, to Rehoboam. So he will come up with a scheme to put, keep people going to these idolatrous shrines rather than to go see Yahweh, Lord Almighty, at the temple because he doesn't want the people to go to Rehoboam. And so here you see Jeroboam saying, it's more important that the people stay with me then go to the Lord of glory at the temple. Mm. I don't want them getting caught up with Rehoboam again. And so Jeroboam is putting his mission, his kingdom, above God's mission and God's kingdom. Because they're not – they're still called to go to the temple, but you have Jeroboam saying, well, it's more important that they're allied with me. So uh, the king took counsel, it says, got some advice, and made two calves of gold. And he said to the people... He must have gone to those same young men. Yeah, I'm guessing. They were still hanging around going, hey, listen, <laughs> we've got some extra advice if you want that. Or whoever it was that talked to Aaron <laughs> at the foot of the Mount Sinai and said, hey, let me give you some advice about a golden calf. And he said to the Not people, so bright. you have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Now, that's an interesting thing, too, because obviously there he's playing on the fact that they just said, we've got no portion with you. Judah, you know, go do your thing, house of David. We're in our tents. And so now what he's doing, he's, he's playing on the tribalism here. You've gone mm-hmm. up to Jerusalem long enough. God was making you go to his place. Oh, no, we've got our own places. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. And, of course, Dan, we remember back from Judges, that was a place where idolatrous worship kind of was a big thing. It's like, what do you do when you're looking for an idol? Go to Dan. There's going to be some there. For (laughs) For then, it says, then this thing became a sin, for the people went as far as Dan to be before one. He also made temples on high places and appointed priests from among all the people who were not of the Levites. That's a problem. <laughs> mm-hmm. This is straight up rebellion. Remember, the Levites are scattered throughout all of the tribes, so it's not a problem that the Levites aren't there. He has just decided, you know what, even though the law of God requires that the priest be of the Levites, I don't care. I want to saturate this place with priests, so we'll take come one, come all. You can be a priest. Um And that is in rebellion. That's in defiance of God's command. Yeah. And Jeroboam appointed a feast on the 15th day of the eighth month, like the feast that was in Judah, and he offered sacrifices on the altar. So he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he made, and he placed in Bethel the priests of the high places that he had made. He went up to the altar that he had made in Bethel on the 15th day in the eighth month, in the month that he had devised from his own heart. And he instituted a feast for the people of Israel and went up to the altar to make offerings. When we were breaking down this passage and looking at some of this, I said that 
to you as we were talking about it. I said, Jeroboam really here is like playing the populist again because a lot of what's mm-hmm. going on here, this fashioning of the golden calves, he wasn't thinking that people were going to worship you know, a statue of a calf, but it was this idea that it was the place to come and worship their gods, but the calf imagery was something in Baal worship and in some of the pagan practices of the Canaanites who were still in the lands that Israel were, was living in. He was kind of trying to appeal to both sides. Look, I'm going to make a statue over here of a calf, and that's going to make all the Baal worshipers happy, and I'm going to put it over here in Dan and Bethel, and I'm going to tell all the Israelites that's where to go to worship Yahweh. You don't have to go to Jerusalem. That's going to make them happy. So he was really mm-hmm. trying to to play both sides here. Would you agree? Uh, absolutely. And here, what you see with Jeroboam, you he's trying to make worship easier. So it's like again and again what he's saying is, well, I don't want to have – I don't want you to go to Jerusalem. We'll just – you know what? We'll make we'll make places of worship in, in Dan and Bethel. You don't have to travel that far. And, ah, you know, people don't like the fact that only the Levites can be the priests. Other people want to be the priests. You know what? We'll just allow anyone who wants to be a priest to be a priest. And, hey, well, you know, the feast that requires you to go all the way to Judah, we'll just make up our own feast and we'll do our own thing and we're going to make it easy for you. And you notice that any time – <laughs> Watch out for preachers or leaders who come to you saying, you know what, we should make this easier. This, you know, God's command, we need to lighten up on it, and we're, we're going to stretch. Every time that happens, you end up diluting what God's desires are to the point where it's, it's worthless. Um, so where by the end of this, the northern tribes fall into this despicable idolatry. They will never be faithful. Um, and the ten northern tribes fall apart because they started to play fast and loose with the word of God, which is the plumb line. That's, that, is, that is the one way <laughs> that you can know for sure that you are pleasing the Lord and what he wants um, is, to, is to look at his word. And what Jeroboam is essentially saying is, eh, let's make it easy for you. Yeah. And as I said, there was that history also with the city of Dan, Judges 18, uh, verse 29, uh, and they named the city Dan after the name of Dan, their ancestor, who was born to Israel. But the name of the city was Laish, Laish at first. And the people of Dan set mm-hmm. up the carved image for themselves. And Jonathan, the son of Gershom, son of Moses, and his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. So they set up Micah's carved image that he made as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. So Mm -hmm. Dan had a history of being the place you went when you were looking for carved idols. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And and there's there's an unpeeling here that's, that's, I think, intentional. When when Abraham, going all the way back, so we're talking more than a thousand years before this moment, when Abraham came into the land and God is giving him a promise, you know, this is the promised land. Your descendants are going to – this is going to be their land and I'm going to do a great kingdom work here. He builds an altar in Shechem. Then he goes to Bethel and builds an altar there. You know, it'll talk about how Abraham went up to Dan as far as Dan to rescue his nephew Lot. So Abraham comes into the land and he's building all, all these he's building all these places where you worship God, the one true God. And it's like Jeroboam's coming and saying, Yeah, I'm gonna undo that. Yep. Um, I'm I'm going to make room for this synchronized worship of all syncretism, whatever the word Syncretic is. Worship, Syncretistic worship. Syncretistic. Syncretistic. There okay. you go. I can't pull up the word. But where you can worship God however you want, and you can you know fuse it with the worship of Baal and all these foreign gods, and oh by the way, nothing ever, nothing bad ever happened with worshiping golden calves, has it? Like he's just an <laughs> open defiance of God, and it's it, it's going to destroy the ten nor- northern tribes. They will never be faithful to God, wow. um, and it's sad. the The northern kingdom becomes a tale of tragedy. Yeah. Well, we talked about when we when in the very first episode of this, we talked about the fact that First and Second Kings contains the history of the kings of Israel and Judah, and that most of those kings, overwhelmingly, most of those kings did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. There were very few good kings, mm-hmm. but all of the kings of the northern tribes did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. The few good kings mm-hmm. there were. We're in in the southern kingdom. We're in Judah. So, yeah, the track record in the north, not good. And I did the math on this. We we talked about this. Nine – there's 20 kings of the northern kingdom before Assyria comes and wipes them out. 
in 722 BC that all the northern kingdoms or the tribes are just wiped out. Um, nine of the 20 kings are going to be assassinated. So that's that's a 45% assassination rate. So when you become the king of Israel, Not a good look. flip a coin. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's just it becomes this wicked, wicked kingdom. Really wicked. Wow. Well, and I think if there's a message here in, in what we see Jeroboam doing at the end of this, when I read over this, I saw so many parallels to humanity just down through the ages and especially in our modern culture because we've got this – we, meaning modern-day 21st century earthlings – we are the masters of syncretic worship. We want to take little bits and pieces from everything. We want to sit back and, well, I'm going to go shopping, and I like some of the things that God says, but mm-hmm. I like this thing from Buddha over here, and and this kind of just mm-hmm. generally, and and we end up with this this sort of blend of where we get to cherry pick, and it's because in the end, this all goes back again. Like we keep saying this, this all goes back to the garden, Genesis chapter three, when Adam and Eve said, "No, God, it's okay. We're on mm-hmm. your level. We're, we we work just like you." I mean, that's where we are still. Instead of recognizing mm-hmm. the truth of God, we want to pull in these bits and pieces from all these other things whether whether it's other religions or just whether we want to worship our own appetites sam we try to pull it all together and create this blended thing that we like better because god can be inconvenient sometimes yeah and and the whole we talked about god's sovereignty earlier yep the fact the evidence that we're syncretistic is (laughs) we're gonna have to practice that word before next week (laughs) whatever it whatever whatever it is syncretistic (laughs) but But that works. And if not, I'm making it a work. Okay. Um, But we want to blame God for being sovereign, which means what? There's something in our life that we don't think God has the right to take from us. Yeah. Whether it's our life, our health, whatever. It's all a gift from him. It's all his, right? And he can do with it what he wants. We might not like it, but ultimately he's God. And when we say, hey, there is something in my life that is so precious to me that you, God Almighty, on the throne of heaven have no right to take from me, then it shows that I worship that thing more than I worship him, that I think that I have a right to something more than he does. And so we say, yeah, God is good so long as he doesn't what that's that's your other god i mean if you can say i'll do anything god wants except that's your god like if he does this then i can't worship him well then that thing that you can't give up is your god and so jeroboam does it with very obvious things you know golden calves but we do it with our money we do it with our relationships i do it with my kids or my country like the i'm patriotic the idea of america falling like god you can't do that you know like, we do it in a million different ways, but at the end of the day, God is calling on us to step back and say, I trust that you're good. I trust in your sovereignty. I live with open hands, God. I don't want you to take it. I'm going to pray that you don't take it. I'm going to plead with you that you don't take it. But if you take it, whatever it might be, you're good. Yeah. And I'm going to trust that you're going to do something beautiful in it. Yeah. And, you know, maybe we close with this, but... You know, Rehoboam comes and he gives us this picture of a tyrannical king who comes along and says, oh, you want rest? Well, I'm going to beat you in the dirt, right? Uh, You you think your yoke is heavy now. Well, wait, I'm going to make it even heavier. And we serve a God who looks at us and is so kind that he comes into the world not to say, hey, you're doing a bad job with the yoke, Right. He comes into the world of brokenness and sin and shame and guilt, and he says, that yoke that you're carrying, the one that's driving you into the ground, the one that your knees are buckling under the weight of it, I'm taking it from you. Yeah. And he says this. Think about this in contrast to Rehoboam. This is in Matthew 11, chapter uh, verses 28 through 30. I love this. This is straight from the mouth of God. He says, come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Can you imagine if Rehoboam had said that? Mm. I see you. You're laboring. You're, you're heavy. You're burdened. Come to me, and I will give you rest. And then he says, take my yoke upon you, the yoke of a king. Let, walk beside me. Let me carry this burden with you. And learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke 
is easy and my burden is light. The whole picture, when he says that, he is absolutely, I'm convinced of this, he's thinking back to the example of Rehoboam and what happened with Rehoboam. Rehoboam says, no, you carry a heavier yoke for me, right? And he he increases the burden on the people, and it destroys them. It destroys the kingdom. And here comes a better king who's offering a better kingdom who's saying, no, as your king, I'm taking your yoke that's crushing you, and I'm going to be crushed. Now here, take my yoke. I'm gentle. I'm lowly in heart. And you know what that does is it allows, you know, just like those elders of Israel said to Rehoboam, man, if you will just serve them. For just a moment, they'll give the rest of their lives to you. That's what happens with the gospel. When you see a king that is that good, who cares about you that much, that he would take your burden and give you rest, you want to spend the rest of your life serving him. Yeah. Jesus is a much better picture than Rehoboam. Oh, yeah. my goodness. Yeah. He's wonderful. And he comes to bring us rest. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, we'll let that stand as our last word on First Kings chapter twelve. Um, I've actually enjoyed this chapter. Uh, I've enjoyed the conversation. I thought I've really I've, this has been this has been good. I think there's a lot of things in here uh, that we can take to heart that can uh, encourage us. Um, we do hope that you've enjoyed your time yeah. with us. That uh, this study has been profitable for you. Uh, these messages are being preached right now at Rio Vista Community Church. So we encourage you, if you're interested in keeping up with the message series as well as the podcasts, to take advantage of our free smartphone app, which you can get in the uh, Apple app store or google play uh, or come to our website at riovistachurch.com where you can find all of the messages there as well Um, that's also by the way where you can find all the back episodes of the out of water podcast at riovistachurch.com that's r-i-o vistachurch.com slash out of water you can also find them on apple podcasts google play or on spotify and in the rio vista church smartphone app Sam and I will be back next week with the massive data load that is four chapters. First Kings 13 through 16. Four chapters. Ladies and gentlemen, buckle up because it's going to be a three-hour podcast next week. You think? No. No. (laughs) Okay. We'll find some way to condense it down. Right now, people are – right now, they're thinking, okay, I'll skip next week. I'll skip next week. Okay. Well, for those brave souls that will join us next week, we look forward to seeing you then. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash outofwater.